you will turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We'll be looking at verses 36 through 53. The title of our sermon this morning is Upward and Onward, and our key words for worshipers in training are spirit, body, and ascension. Now, on February 26, 2012, we began our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And today, we end our journey in almost the same amount of time as the ministry of Jesus that we've looked at over the last 97 sermons. We've looked at every single verse in the Gospel of Luke, which is the longest book in the New Testament. And now we have the great privilege of coming to its close. Now, when we started, I told you there were several things that I was hoping for and praying for that would come to fruition through our time in the Gospel of Luke. And here are those things. I said that I hoped the Lord would give us greater certainty of our faith in Jesus Christ and that we would be able to understand more deeply why we believe what we believe and that we would have an absolute assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not seen. Now, obviously, we can only answer that for ourselves individually, but I hope this has been true of you as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke. Secondly, I've prayed that the Lord would show us how every single text points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, when working through the gospel, that's a bit easier to see, but there have been so many times throughout the gospel of Luke that we've considered Old Testament passages that were being alluded to or explicitly referenced by Luke as he wrote. And Jesus, time and time again, is working from Old Testament texts as he speaks to his friends and to his enemies, as he's making clear that the Bible is all about him. I hope you've grown in your appreciation of that truth and it's helped you to see the Bible thoroughly as a Christ-centered work. Third, I've prayed that the Gospel of Luke would give us a greater love for Christ in light of what he has done and is doing on our behalf. I think we saw that most clearly a few months ago when we looked at Jesus' journey to the cross and then his death on our behalf. Could there be any question from all of this that the Lord loves his people, that he would willingly die for us? I hope Luke's gospel has given you a profound sense that you are loved by God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's shown us this in the power of his great work and the love that has been proclaimed time and time again. Fourth, my prayer has always been that as a church, and specifically as we've looked through Luke's gospel, that we would be a people who, having dug into the gospel, thinking hard about the text, meditating on the text, applying the word to our lives, prayerfully asking God to transform our minds, to be conformed to his word, that we would be a people who are more readily talking about Jesus with one another and with others. That our lives and our thoughts would be so utterly consumed by Jesus that we couldn't possibly have thoughts or plans in our lives separated from thoughts of God's word, of Jesus' work, of wanting to fulfill God's will in our lives. 
We've received a great deal of practical wisdom from God's word. So we've been given a lot of perhaps new ways of thinking about our lives and the world around us. Fifth, my prayer has been that non-believers and skeptics would hear the gospel and would be undeniably convinced of the evidence that the scriptures give to us of the reality of Jesus Christ in the gospel of Luke and that they would repent and believe. And while we haven't seen mass conversion, we have seen a few people come to faith in Christ here at Ephesus Church in our time in the gospel of Luke. And we praise God for awakening darkened dead hearts to new life in Jesus Christ. And while there are some who have consistently heard the gospel, as we've preached throughout our time in Luke, they have not repented and trusted in Christ. And yet, we cannot underestimate the work of God in someone's heart. What seems to be lifeless and cold today may be ignited with an inquenchable flame tomorrow. God's word does as God intends it to do. And so we praise God for whatever he does with his word as we've looked at an entire book of the Bible. And lastly and most importantly, I've prayed that God would be glorified in our journey through the Gospel of Luke as we've attempted each week, by God's grace, to see Jesus as satisfying and sufficient and glorious as our Savior. So I hope things have come to pass for us individually and corporately in this way, that the Lord has grown us, that he has changed us, that he has sanctified us along the way. Now, a lot has happened in the life of Ephesus Church since we began the Gospel of Luke, and every single bit of it, every bit of it is for our benefit because God is always at work for the good of his people, even when it's painful, even when it's confusing, even when it's difficult. God is for us 100% and irrevocably, and the Gospel of Luke has taught us that all along the journey. And so that being said, this morning we bring the Gospel of Luke to a close. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has encounters with several of his disciples. And this morning we look at what Luke records as Jesus' final encounter with his disciples before he ascends into heaven 40 days after he rose from the dead. And so we begin this morning in verse 36 of Luke chapter 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. 
So here we have the disciples and they're all gathered together in someone's home in Jerusalem and they're trying to put all of the pieces together, all the things they're hearing, all the things that they have seen. It's as if they're in the situation room in Washington, D.C. during a major national event and all of the news comes flowing in. Bit by bit, they're trying to figure it out. Cleopas and his companion have come all the way back from Emmaus reporting to everyone about their seven-mile journey with Jesus. Simon Peter had an encounter with Jesus, and he's sharing that. And surely there were others who saw Jesus. They were confused. They were shocked. And they weren't exactly sure what to do with all of this information. But they were talking. They were gathering facts. They were putting the puzzle together. And then, completely unexpected, out of nowhere, Jesus shows up in their midst. He just shows up. Look again, verse 36. They were talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them. Can you imagine that? We're sitting, we're talking about Jesus right now. If all of a sudden we glance over to the side and there's Jesus. He shows up. There he is. We all glance over and he's standing there. And we might rub our eyes a bit in disbelief, a little confused maybe. We might not know who he is. We don't know what he looks like. But they did. And immediately he speaks to them. He says, peace to you. And verse 37 says they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, we don't get the picture that this was just a nonchalant kind of thing, right? I imagine they jumped. Some of them who were probably closer to where Jesus was standing backed up right away. Their eyes get really big. They're kind of holding on to one another. They're, sh- they're stuttering and pointing and gasping and wondering what's going on. It's, it's easy to kind of read this and not get a feel for what would have been going through their minds. But just imagine yourself sitting in this room. You're talking about Jesus. You're talking about this, this man who has died and is now appearing to people all over the place, and he just shows up. And they thought they were seeing a spirit. They thought they were seeing a ghost. Now, there's a really funny objection to the resurrection wherein people say, well, all of these people were just having hallucinations. People weren't really seeing Jesus physically. And that might have been a plausible argument if the disciples themselves didn't think they were having hallucinations. That's what they thought. So it's a foolish argument because that's exactly what was going through their minds. And it's no less irrational for them in the first century to claim to have seen someone raised from the dead standing in their presence as it is for us today. They weren't so supernatural in their spirituality that this was something they would have sort of shrugged off and said, oh yeah, Jesus, he rose from the dead, and there he is. They thought they saw a spirit And I love how Jesus responds to all of the instant commotion as soon as they see him. Why are you troubled? And why is there doubt in your hearts? Now, I would like to pretend that if I was in that moment, 
that I would be very spiritual. And I would say, Jesus, you have been raised from the dead. Just as the scriptures taught us should happen. And just as you have communicated to us and to many of the disciples in the room as you've appeared to them over the last few hours, you are correct. There is no reason for us to fear or to doubt. But come on. Why are you troubled and why do you have doubt in your hearts? How would you really respond? Now, think about this. John writes in his gospel, he makes a point of telling us that the door was locked. There wasn't this wide open door that Jesus sort of meandered through. They were scared of the Jews because of all that had just happened. They were meeting in privacy. They were hiding out with a locked door. And Jesus just shows up. So when he asks, what's up with their fear? More accurately, they would say, well, you see, what had happened was you weren't here and now you are here. And the door is locked and, you know, you're supposed to be dead. Maybe all of that has something to do with our response. Right? But Jesus doesn't stand for that, does he? He knows exactly why they're troubled. He knows exactly why they have doubts. But it's not acceptable to him. And yet he's patient with his disciples. He gives them proof of his presence as a physical being and not just a mere spirit. So Jesus works patiently to assuage their fears. He invites them to examine him, to touch his hands and to his feet, to demonstrate to them that he is flesh and bone and not a mere spirit. They felt for themselves solid flesh over hard bones. Some probably even touched his open wounds. Jesus was physically there in their presence. It was his earthly body but raised to a higher position. The materiality of his resurrection was a fact, and they were learning it to be fact right then and there. Luke writes for us in verse 41, they still disbelieved for joy. In mere moments, the apostles' condition had become one of positive, not negative, but positive disbelief. They had this, this sort of amazed, giddy disbelief. Some of you can identify. The, the first time, man, your wife said, well, we're going to have a baby. Uh, say that again? <laughs> okay, one more time. Are you sure about this? You should probably take another pregnancy test. Okay, maybe just one more. Okay, how about... We check one more time, right? This is what Luke describes as disbelieving for joy. I'm excited. I, I, I've been looking forward to this. I want this. I just can't believe it. Is this really happening? And so Jesus demonstrates for them so that they would move beyond the disbelief and accept this as reality. He demonstrates his physicality even further. He proves the reality of his resurrection and his physical body by asking for something to eat, to consume some of their broiled fish. And this finally convinces the disciples because spirits wouldn't have 
been understood as being able to have consumed something physical and solid. They would have thought them to be like a a cloud. It looks physical. It looks tangible. But it doesn't have physical properties that can be touched. But Jesus, they could touch. And they ate with him. Now, I want you to notice a, a feature here of Luke's writing. Here he gives us one bookend of the scene. And he says, the disciples disbelieved for joy. But at the end, the other bookend is that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And so, something along the way is moving the disciples from a sort of excited disbelief to complete and utter joy that has them praising God and rejoicing. Because remember, this has taken us a few weeks to walk through, but these last few scenes we've seen in, the, in, in Luke's gospel have happened over a matter of hours. So they've gone from a few days of being utterly depressed and broken and confused, and now they are filled with joy and rejoicing. And what does Jesus say to them that has them turn the corner here? Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, once again, as we saw last week, when Jesus spoke with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he does two things here. First, he reminds them of what he himself has already said. And he reminds us of what the scriptures have said. Remember, this is what the angels at the tomb did when the women arrived and they didn't see Jesus there. They said, why do you look for the living Amongst the dead. He is not here. He is risen. Remember what he told you? And so they sort of receive this gentle rebuke from the angels, but, but Jesus is once again appealing to his own words. These are my own words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. I've told you this already, and here I am. But then the other thing he does is this he points them to the scriptures. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We just read one of those this morning. Psalm 22 is about Christ. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So we can summarize what Jesus says here like this. Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. That's what he shows them. And Luke writes that Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Literally, he made them able to perceive and to understand all that has been written. They knew what it said. They didn't know what it meant. Very much Jesus speaking to the reality of what we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the sufficiency of the Scriptures. 
What we've seen all along is what has been this recurring theme over and over and over when it comes to, their, to the disciples and their expectation as they read the Old Testament. It wasn't just that the disciples were confused about all this. It was all of the Jews. It's the very reason Jesus' enemies so violently rejected him. Everything to them was about a physical, literal, in-the-moment realization of the kingdom of God that was going to be marked by this literal throne in the literal temple on the literal land with the Messiah overthrowing the Roman Empire and Jerusalem being the center of the world where the Messiah was the great and mighty king that rules with peace and justice. All of their expectations were off. And so they had no room in their minds for a Messiah that would come into the world, would be rejected by his own people, would be violently murdered, and would die a horrific death. It's written plainly in the Scriptures, and yet they never saw it. So if that wasn't on their radar screen for who the Messiah would be, certainly resurrection wasn't in their picture either. And yet Jesus opens their minds to see. And now the Old Testament Scriptures were going to be read in a completely different light. Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament, but for them, He was concealed. But now for us, as we read the New Testament, we are able to see revealed all that was written about Him prior to the coming and living and dying and raising from the dead. That's why it's very important for us as we read the Scriptures to read from the New Testament into the Old Testament and not the other way around. It's sort of a a commentary for us, explaining to us what the Old Testament means. And so Jesus shows this very thing here to the disciples, and all that he gives them is a picture of what is going to happen next. He says, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. I just want to highlight once again, as we did last week, it would have been very easy for Jesus at this moment to say, listen, guys, it's me. I'm Jesus. I was raised from the dead, and here I am, so let's move on with this thing. And he would have given them a great experience. They would have been able to tell everyone of their experience, and no one can take that away from them. However, that's not what Jesus did. Instead, he takes the time to bring them back to the Scriptures, the very Scriptures they'd known from a very young age, and he worked with them to show them what they had not seen before. This should highlight for us the absolute importance of the Word of God. We need to know the Bible. We need to know what it says, what it points to, what it commands. And as Jesus makes very clear here, we need to know how to find Jesus in the text. So even in Jesus' teaching, after the resurrection, they have physical proof of his resurrection. He's still very concerned about them seeing it all in the Bible. Not just having an experience that they can reference. Why? Well, for their own benefit, that they can trust the sufficiency of God's word. To trust that God will do what he says he will do. 
but also so that they can do what they're now going to be sent out to do, to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. They're given an onward call here, and we see that in verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus gives his disciples their marching orders. They're to be sent out, but he tells them to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, you have seen what has happened. You are eyewitnesses to my life and to my death and now to my resurrection. So in due time, you will receive power from on high and you will be sent out to preach the gospel to the nations. Now Luke, fully knowing he's about to write the book of Acts, doesn't elaborate much on what he means here, but the end of verse 49 is a clear reference to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit will provide the disciples with the necessary power to preach and to bring the gospel to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now let's... Let's think for a few minutes here about what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's highlighting this reality that when we live in a world in which we know the resurrection is true, there are certain ways of living that are going to change drastically. Once you know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you realize that God is working to make all things new, reconciling all things unto himself. And once you know that, you have no option but to live as a witness, which means everything in the world, your whole life in this world is shaped by the resurrection. Let me give you two examples of this. First, if you believe in the resurrection, that means you're free from the material world. Well, what do we mean by that? It means as great as the gifts of God are in this material world, here and now, it won't have control over you. As Americans, we generally live pretty busy lives, and that, that's such a common theme in our conversations, isn't it? How are you? Well, I'm really busy. And by that, we mean a lot of things. It includes that we're always sort of going somewhere, at least in our minds. We have things we want to accomplish, goals we want to achieve, heights to which we want to soar. It's just a given anymore in Western culture that until you're dead, you're in this process of moving up to the next level, whether it's your home or your career or your education or anything else along those lines. It's always on the move, and we feel busy. But eventually, for most of us, something happens and we experience suffering or tragedy or there's some other kind of setback and we have to face reality and say, all that I was striving for, that's probably not going to happen. Things are not going to pan out the way that I had thought they were. And so what often happens is then there's a lot of regret. There's a lot of questioning. There's a lot of despondency. However, what if the resurrection is true? How does that change the way we think about these things? 
Many of you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a Christian woman. She was paralyzed from the neck down in a terrible accident when she was 18 years old. So she's a quadriplegic and she's in a wheelchair. And in the midst of all this, she's even had cancer and has endured uh, her treatments through cancer. She writes and speaks at conferences. And one time she wrote that she was at a meeting in which a leader from the podium says, let's pray. And she was part of this large group and and somebody uh, who was speaking said, Let's kneel to pray. Let's kneel before God as we pray. So everyone around her knelt down, but of course she couldn't. She suddenly realized that she couldn't and and that on this earth she would never kneel again. And the thought came into her head, I'm never going to be able to kneel before God. And she just started to weep. But then she writes something like this, "I, I remembered the resurrection. Just before the party gets going, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on my resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees, kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus, and then I'm going to rise to my feet and dance. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone with a spinal cord injury like mine, she writes. Can you imagine the hope this even gives someone who is in a constant state of despair and depression? No other religion promises new bodies, a new material universe. Only in the gospel of Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. So you see what she's saying In the kingdom of God, we don't just float around. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to run, we're going to dance, we're going to sing and work and hug one another. New heavens, new earth, new bodies. What does that mean for us today? It means relax. You say, well, I'm never going... Something happened to me, and now I'm never going to achieve my dream of climbing Mount Everest. You will. I never learned how to dance. You will. I'm a lousy dancer. Yes, you are, but you won't be. Even if you're in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic with cancer, there's no reason for despair. Brothers and sisters, we are not going to miss out on anything. And so that means in this life we are freed from the material universe. That means to to say these things in this world shouldn't control you, that we're not losing something. If we lose something on this earth, so what? If you give up something to serve someone or to love someone, or if because of some providence, something in your life gets cut off, so what? We're not missing anything. And so we can be kept from being despondent, from being frantic. This is why James can tell us that we consider it all joy when we face trials of various kinds and that we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
And that when we grieve, we don't grieve as the pagans do because we have hope. And so that's the first thing that we learn and that we remember when we believe in the resurrection. And the second thing is this. The resurrection means that we are not only freed from material possessions, but we're also freed for the world because the resurrection means salvation is not escaping getting out of this material world without all of its troubles. Christian salvation is heaven entering into and transforming the world around us. What does that mean? One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther was this. Someone asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? What would you do today? And he thought about it for a second and he said, I'd plant a tree. And we might scratch our heads about that and say, why? Why would you plant a tree? There's so many other more spiritual things that you could do. But think of what Jesus' coming is going to do to that tree. This was his point. Think of how it's going to grow and how it's going to blossom. As Psalm 96 says, think of how it's going to dance and how it's going to sing. So plant, repair, fix, sow, reap. We can live and work in this material world with enormous hope. There is a worldview out there that says the world is not important. All that matters is heaven and the spiritual, and so we're just waiting around until we die or Jesus returns, and it's all going to be over, and we'll just move on with eternity. And so the idea is that we just sort of disengage completely. That's not what the Bible points us to. It's certainly not the secular mindset that gives you freedom from the world and freedom for the world. That secular mindset says the material world is all there is. And so we better give all of our lives to just fixing it. And so the resurrection corrects both errors here, right? It gives you freedom from the world. That it's not our only focus, but it gives us freedom for the world. To rightly engage the world. And to rightly plant trees. Because we know there is a new day when Christ will make it far greater. It gives us peace and we can handle anything. We're not going to miss out on anything. We're engaged. We're involved. He says, I send you now that your witnesses to the resurrection into the world to live utterly different lives. It reforges your entire life as you live as a citizen of the new society. And we see verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, in Acts chapter 1, Luke sort of reiterates the scene in verse 9. He says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
The cloud that took him or received him was the Shekinah, a visible representation of the pleasure and the presence of God. It's the same visible presence that Moses encountered on Sinai with God when he covered him and saw its afterglow. It's the same cloud that traveled before Israel in the day and appeared as a pillar of fire by night. It was the cloud that lay over the tabernacle and filled the temple. It was the glorious cloud that Ezekiel saw depart from the east gate. It's the same shimmering presence that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone forth like the sun. And now Jesus lifts his hands and he blesses his disciples and their eyes and their hearts remain fixed on the Shekinah as it moved further and further away. And as the distance increased, their dazzled countenances began to fade, their sparkling eyes dimmed, and they could hear Jesus no more. And yet, very much unlike when he died, they went back to Jerusalem rejoicing. This was the exodus toward which the gospel of Luke has so diligently moved. Remember in Luke chapter 9, we read that during the transfiguration, amidst the glorious splendor, Jesus had talked to Moses and Elijah about his departure, which was about to bring fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's Luke 9.31. And shortly after that discussion, Luke writes, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke said, as the time drew near for him to be taken up into heaven, what do we always think about? Jesus being crucified on the cross, important? Absolutely. Jesus raising from the dead, important, life-giving, hope-fulfilling, absolutely. But what was Jesus moving toward ultimately? The time had come for him to move toward Jerusalem that he would be taken up into heaven. And finally, before the Sanhedrin on the night of his crucifixion, Jesus referred to the exaltation that would follow. Remember in chapter 22, he said, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus' great exodus is now complete. And with his ascension, there also came an elevation of Jesus' ministry to new heights. What has Luke taught us over the last two and a half years at Ephesus Church? He has shown us that the incarnation of Jesus Christ was not this casual, fleeting thing, but it has permanent consequences that we are forced to deal with. And he ends his gospel account by reminding us that Christ's humanity is in heaven. And at his coming, he will take humanity that he has redeemed to be with him in heaven. Jesus has become the first fruits of his people through his resurrection and ascension. And so he guarantees the final redemption where we will have unbroken, unhindered communion with him forever and ever. And as a result of the Christian's unity with Jesus, there's a sense in which we have ascended into heaven with him already. Where the head is, there also are its members. 
Paul writes, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The present exaltation of believers is a fact that will be seen fully in Christ's return. We have ascended with him and we can glory in it now. And the disciples' response to all of this, they worshiped. Day by day, they were continually in the temple blessing God. They worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed at the temple praising God. With the ascension, all of his disciples at last understood And they bowed in awe and adoration. And this is where the gospel ought to leave us too. Worshiping an ascended king. And not just an ascended king who we now wait to send power. But an ascended king who has sent the power of the Holy Spirit. Whose gospel has been brought far and wide. And yet, the mission is not complete. And so the ascended king commissions his people to bring the gospel to the nations and to proclaim that Jesus Christ has risen and is king of all. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the very thing the disciples saw on that day. Jesus Christ is the ascended Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word humbles us to the dust, and yet it gives us such glorious hope, because you have proven time and time again that your promises are sure, that our hope can be real, because it is found in truth with a covenant-keeping God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations. And so, Father, we recognize that indeed to live is Christ and yet to die is gain. But we live. And so may it be of us, O God, that we would live lives free from this world and yet fully, intentionally engaged in living for the good of this world. Because you have put us here as those who are to be witnesses to the nations. And so, Lord, let us to be good witnesses with our lives in the ways we live, in the things we do, in the words we speak, in the thoughts we think. And may it be that the world encounters Jesus Christ as risen Lord and that the world will willingly bow their knee to Jesus as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the past two and a half years, all that you've taught us through the Gospel of Luke. 
the ways you have encouraged and strengthened us, the ways you've rebuked us and caused us to change, and the ways that you have given us greater hope. In all that Christ is, in all that Christ has done for us, we rejoice this morning that Christ our Savior is the one true and living Savior, the exalted and ascended King who rules and reigns from his throne forever and ever. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.